0: Father, we we thank you for those who are recovering uh, from this COVID that has affected so many people, and it looks like it will affect everyone to some degree. Uh, we ask that you would give us wisdom uh, to help us not to be contaminating others whenever possible, and help us, Lord, to endure uh, any sickness that may come along. And I pray for us, Lord, from this day forward, it would be mild if we get the symptoms at all, but according to your will. And we ask also, according to your will, that you would enlighten us from your word, that you would help us to be prepared for the rest of our lives here and what lies ahead, and help us to avoid the pitfalls like in backpacking the snakes and falling off cliffs and all of those. We know that you have prepared us for these pitfalls, for these problems, for these difficulties. And we ask that you would help us to apprehend this information, this wisdom, and this understanding that we may be pleasing to you as we approach the day when we will see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. So Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul's purpose in suffering for the church of Colossae and Laodicea and the other believers that he had contact with at that time was that they might be encouraged, unified, have understanding, and know Jesus for in Jesus is all wisdom and knowledge. Now, wisdom, wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. You may have a lot of knowledge, but you may not be able to apply it correctly. And God gives us that wisdom to apply the knowledge that we have, whether it's from secular earthly sources or whether it's from him. We get that knowledge to uh, operate correctly. Like, for instance, you may know a lot about a particular subject, but the scripture says the fool speaks of all that he knows he dishes all the information that he knows all at one time and God wants our words to be few and used only when necessary and and also with knowledge what kind of knowledge does Jesus present, uh, possess well he knows everything about the physical world the spiritual realm the origin, where we came from, morality, our purpose in life, our destiny, the philosophical musings of people on this earth. He knows everything about philosophy. But for us, even if we think we know something, we probably don't know as we ought. And even that which we do know might be an error. Uh, In the trades that I have worked in uh, previously, I, I know... A little bit. I know in some things a lot, but I don't know everything that I should know. But it's beneficial to have that knowledge. Now, uh, I'm going to give you some examples of this where we think we know something, but maybe we don't know as we should, or maybe we don't know everything, or that which we know is in error. Uh, For instance, yesterday I listened to an hour and 46 minutes, a debate between Richard Dawkins and John Lennox, both from Oxford University. Now, if you're familiar with those two, John Luddix is a Northern Ireland boy that uh, became proficient in mathematics. He's a professor of mathematics, so he's really smart uh, to teach at Oxford. And he dabbles in a couple other things. And Richard Dawkins is an atheist, and he deals in biology. And so they were going back and forth, and the debate was concerning uh, the God delusion that Richard Dawkins wrote. I think he has a total of eight or 11 books, something like that. And that's one that he wrote, and this debate was based on that. Of course, Dawkins is an atheist, and Lennox is a believer. I love listening to John Lennox. He's witty. uh, He's smart. He's good. And one question, or at one point, Dawkins was making was, who created God? And he bases one of his arguments that there is no God because God would have to be created. As if to say, Christians think that God is someone who has been created. And John Lennox pointed out the error in the reasoning. This is what you know as a straw man. You set something up that you believe to be true and you knock it down and that buttresses your argument. So Dawkins was saying, who created God? If God is created, you know, he's no God at all. And John Lennox came along and said, that's not true at all. All orthodox teaching and orthodox believers believe that god is uncreated that he has always existed so his whole argument just fell by the wayside and they went back and forth on that and he builds this argument on the premise that god is a created being and of course he is in error with what the bible teaches on that god is not a created being like i said it's a straw man argument he stressed that christians make up A God to explain everything we do not understand. This is the God of the gaps theories. Like, for instance, how did the earth and the universe come into being? Well, we don't know. And he says, well, the Christians just say God, right? And we know that the scientists previous, like in Einstein's time and Hubble, they discovered Hubble discovered the red shift in the universe, which means everything is moving away from everything else. At one time, it's like it exploded. That's why they call it the Big Bang. But everything's moving away. And Einstein thought that the universe lasted forever or it has existed forever. It just takes different forms. It may collapse on itself and explode again. And Hubble came out and said, no, it had a beginning. You extrapolate it backwards and the universe had a beginning. And Einstein didn't like that at all. And John Lennox, in this debate, he said, you know, all these scientists had to do was go back to the Bible, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the scientists came up to snuff with what the Bible has already said for centuries, for millennia. And he was making that point, and of course the crowd clapped at that point in the debate. And it it was a good debate, and I've heard John Lennox before, and like I said, he, he is just a master at debates and Dawkins, he doesn't do so well. He takes a lot of liberty. He uses a lot of fallacies. He doesn't know that which he should and what he thinks he knows is in error. And you watch these debates from time to time, and you see how this just comes out. They take liberties with the scriptures, or they set up straw men, and what they think they know, they don't actually know. And John Lennox went on to say, you know, you should just read the Bible and see what the Bible says instead of refuting it without having the knowledge of what's written inside. And so going back, in verse 3 it says, In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Well, what about us? Do we know what we ought to know? For instance, this last week, Patty asked me a question that somebody asked her about generational sins. The sins of our fathers, do they, does God visit us with judgment because of the sins of our fathers? Those who came before us, even our mothers, our family, our ancestors. Whatever sins that they were committing, are we judged for those sins? Because there is this belief and as I was listening to another study this week, uh, this person went through John 9, verse 1. And here we have Jesus, and there was this blind man who was there. He says, as he went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So there was this predicate that the disciples believed that if somebody was born deformed or infirmed or uh, in some way inhibited from having a full life because of a physical deformity that it was their parents who sinned jesus goes on to say neither this man nor his parents sinned said jesus but this happened so that the work of god might be displayed in his life so god tells us that this man was not born blind as a result of the sin of the parents but this is misunderstood based on a couple of scriptures that a generational sin, a sin can go from the parents to the children and the children will be judged for it. Numbers chapter 14, verse 18. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation. And that's where this generational sin comes in. But it's a kind of an improper reading of the text here. Jeremiah 32.18 32.18 says basically the same thing. It says, You shall love to thousands, but bring the punishment for the father's sins into the laps of their children after them. So it would seem to indicate on the surface reading that God judges the children of the fathers who have sinned. But there's a rebuttal to this misunderstanding. in of all places, Jeremiah, it's listed here in 31 verse, verse 29. It says, In those days... People will no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for his own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. What's the saying is the father's sin will be paid for by the children. The children will experience the judgment. And the other one, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, it says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. So obviously there seems to be an apparent contradiction, but there is not a contradiction. What is going on here, I'm going to read something else from Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 14. I want you to stick with me. It's going to go through verse 17, or excuse me, verse 18. Says, but suppose his son or this son has a son who sees all the sins his father commits, and though he sees them, he does not do such things. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look at the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife. He does not oppress anyone or require a pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He withholds his hand. From sin and takes no usury or excessive interest, he keeps my laws and follows my decrees. He will not die for his father's sins. He will surely live, but his father will die for his own sin because he has practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong among his people. And so, what this is saying is if the children practice the sins of the father, the sins of the sons will be judged, but just like the sins of the father, they will be judged the same. So if the father sins and the children pick up those sins, they will be judged the same way as the fathers are judged. But if the father sins and the son does not sin, he will not be judged according to those sins of the father. And so there's a misunderstanding. This is a case where even though we think we understand something, we don't understand it just as we should. And Jesus has full understanding Of all these things, but our understanding lacks. If we lack in wisdom or knowledge, we go to Jesus and we ask him, well, what about this? Please give us or give me understanding. I can't tell you how many times I have not understood something. And I ask Jesus just quietly, will you please give me understanding? And he brings the understanding through somebody, through a message. I get it and I go, thanks, Lord. That helps. I have that understanding now. So what about little sayings that we have? You know, there are several sayings, and there's like over 30 of them, that we repeat over and over, but they are probably incorrect. They are not exactly as they should be. For instance, every generation picks up practices and customs from the previous generation. And have you ever played the telephone game? You know where you start out, somebody is talking, and we've done this in youth before, and you say something to somebody else, and then that person says it to somebody else, and it gets shorter and shorter and shorter. By the time you get to the end, you were talking about apples, and by the time it gets to you again, they're talking about giraffes. It's not even close in what they were talking about. That's the telephone game. Well, we do this with understanding certain quotes. Quotes that we use all the time. Quotes that I have used and when I found out the original meaning of the full quote, it completely changes what the quote is. For instance, these quotes. Uh, The first quote is, Jack of all trades, master of none. You ever heard that? I heard that this last week. A guy was pouring concrete at my house. And he goes, yeah, I'm a jack of all trades a master of none. Yeah, I've heard that. And then I heard previously somebody mentioned, well, have you heard the full quote on that? I, I said, no, I haven't heard it. It is, a jack of all trades is a master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one. Completely changes the meaning. A jack of all trades is preferable to somebody who is a master of only one trade. And it, and it changes the meaning of the quote. It just like flips it around where jack of all trades, master of none. Well, you don't want to worry about the jack of all trades. You rather would have the master of one. But the full quote, I'll read it again. A jack of all trades is a master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one. And so we lack in our understanding, even with the phrases that we communicate through time, through the telephone game, and we truncate them. And the meaning is completely changed. That happens with Scripture too. We quote Scripture and the meaning is completely changed if we don't go back to the Scripture, memorize it properly, and hold it dearly. So what about another one? Have you ever heard the phrase, blood is thicker than water? We've all heard it, right? Well, that's the incorrect phrase. The correct phrase is, the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. And so you see how it could have morphed in blood is thicker than water. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. Which means, for, let's take this one for instance. Jesus Christ, his blood, the blood of the covenant forgives us our sins. And our attachment to him is greater than our attachment to our families. And so it changes the meaning. It just flips it on its head. Where the first one, you say, blood is thicker than water. You think that family relationships cannot be broken. Those are stronger. And when you go to the, well, what does the water mean? Blood is thicker than water. It's nonsensical. If you just take it at that, the second half of the saying is meaningless. But the first half, you go, oh, yeah, well, family is everything, and everybody else, you know, they're just water or they're just acquaintances. Again, the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. So our covenant with Jesus Christ is much thicker. It's much stronger than any familial relationships or friendships that we might have. Here's another one. Starve a cold, feed a fever. You ever heard that one? I've even thought that when I've had a cold. Okay, I need to starve a cold instead of feed a a fever. That is the incorrect statement. The statement that it, it was originally handed down says, If you starve a cold, you'll have to feed a fever. Which means if you starve a cold, you're going to get sicker and then you're going to turn it into a fever and you're going to have to feed it then. And so to starve a cold and feed a fever, our understanding is completely warped. It is in error with these sayings. And there's a ton of these sayings that we have. And next time you use one, you you should say to yourself, I'm going to go look up and see if that's the full meaning of the statement. Or how about this one? This is the last one. Great minds think alike. I have used that, you know, it's like great minds think alike. Well, that's not what it means, you know. Your friend's next to you and you come to the same conclusion. You go, hey, yeah, and you get the fist bumps and yeah, great minds think alike. And you pat yourself on the back and you think it's all good. The meaning is completely the opposite with the correct statement. It says, great minds think alike, but fools seldom differ. What that means is it's sarcasm sarcasm in the beginning great minds think alike like for instance if you said great it's totally different than great isn't it well great minds and you're you're calling somebody a fool oh you think you're a great mind great minds think alike but fools seldom differ so it's actually an insult It is not something that is beneficial and you think you're homies, you know, and you you bump your hands and everything's good. See how our understanding gets skewed? It becomes in error. Well, we do the same thing with following Christ. As we follow him, sometimes we'll hear somebody speak and we'll think, this is wonderful, but it's off kilter just a little bit. You You know, if you were going from in a sailing ship from here to Hawaii and you were only half a degree off you wouldn't see the islands you'd never see them you'd keep on going maybe end up in Australia you you wouldn't make it to the islands it has to be exact and if we let a little bit of error creep in there then we're going to be off by half a degree or one degree or five or ten degrees. We're going to completely miss the mark. That's why we have to go back to Jesus, who has all wisdom and all knowledge. If you think you're quoting a verse correctly, make sure you're quoting it correctly in context. You know, I was um, listening again to another study by R.C. Sproul. Now, I like R.C. Sproul. He's good, he's intelligent, he's well-spoken. I disagree with him on some theological issues. And one of them was the millennium. He doesn't believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. Of course, he's gone on to be with the Lord, but he, he doesn't believe in a thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, this is a debuta- uh, debutable, debatable subject in Christendom there are people that believe there is a literal thousand year reign of christ i believe that because it's delivered in the narrative and i have other reasons for that there are those people who believe we are in the millennium right now we're going through it right now this is the millennium and it's not actually a thousand years it's a little more it's we can fudge on the years can fuzzle it a little bit and you know just take it out to an nth degree out there and then there are those who say there is no millennium all this happened in the past already it's already done It's already gone. And so I was listening to him on this study. And he went to Matthew chapter 24. And where it deals in Matthew 24 with... This generation shall not pass away that sees all of these things. He goes, that was referring to the nation of Israel in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. They are the ones that see that that generation will not pass away until all these things be fulfilled. So it will happen in the time where the Jews who witness the coming of Jesus Christ will end up witnessing the destruction of the temple. Except he takes it out of context. If you look at the context, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light and all these disasters that happen is like, well, when's that take place? And and it's pulling something out of context. Now, he's a lot smarter than me, but I know uh, the, if the first sense makes sense, seek no other sense unless you have nonsense and you want to have rules of interpretation and you go back and you look at it in context and you're going, Well wait a second, there's other things that are taking place here and you can't just cherry pick one issue out of there. And so and and I'm probably in error in in some areas of my theology as well, and I'm willing to admit that and even change it. But you know, I I saw that. It's like well we, we have to be careful on what we think we know when it comes to the debatable issues in Scripture and be willing to change those. And so even if we think we know something, we probably don't know as we ought, and even that which we know, it might be an error. Now, this is not a possibility with Jesus. Not only does he know everything about anything, he knows it correctly. He knows everything perfectly. That is why verse 3 of chapter 2 states, "...in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom..." and knowledge so if we go to him he has the answers for everything that we need to know now the knowledge that he possesses is given to us on a need to know basis he doesn't just tell us everything that we think we need to know have you ever asked for something and not gotten the answer that happens to us like for instance why is there or is there life elsewhere in the universe is, is there something that's out there? And by the way, if you like that type of stuff, you can look up the Fermi paradox. They have theorized that if there were aliens, we would already have made contact or they're already gone. So oh, there is no alien life out there. It's a pretty good little subject to go through, the, the, go through that philosophy. Or why doesn't he give us information like, why did somebody you love die suddenly? You were prepared for that. Why didn't God prepare you for that? Or why do some suffer in a horrible manner and others have a virtually problem-free life? Why do some get to skate through and others just horrible, horrible existence? I I don't know about if you guys pay attention to other news than ABC, NBC, CBS, MSNBC, CNN, or all those guys, and AP and Reuters. But right now, maybe you've heard about this, Kazakhstan is blowing up. Uh, they raised the price of butane and propane so high, and it's winter there, that it's causing the people to riot. It turned out that for three days, they were walking in the streets, big, big protests over there in Kazakhstan. And then the third day, they opened fire, started killing many people. And people are posting videos of Gunfire in the streets, people being shot. They're, they're just rolling over them. The government has come in and said, this will not happen. And Russia has landed multiple huge jets with troops in them. I mean, it's a big deal, but you probably haven't seen it anywhere in the news. Well, why are they experiencing stuff like that? And we aren't. Why, why do we have it so good? Another thing that's going on right now, and it really surprised me, I didn't know this, but Vietnam and China are going back and forth right now. They're like enemies. And it was China that helped the Viet Cong in the Vietnamese war. And so you go, what's going on? I, I saw a video of Chinese soldiers throwing rocks at Vietnamese trying to buttress up this one river. And they're just throwing rocks at them. And then I saw a Vietnamese ship ran into, a, a rammed a Chinese ship out there in the ocean right off their shore because China dropped an oil platform in what is considered Vietnamese waters. And they're going at it back and forth. But you probably haven't heard of any of that because people who control the news, they only want you to see certain things going on that's why the disasters around the world you say why are there so many disasters and why don't we have these disasters and are more disasters going to come well yes when are they going to come well it could be we visit we have aliens that show up in august 2nd 2022 or that a volcano explodes and we've been told by god maybe but maybe not well, why doesn't god give us this information it's on a need-to-know basis we only get what he wants us to know. We may think we have some answers, but the knowledge we have will always be incomplete. Remember, in Jesus is all wisdom and knowledge, but in us, not so much. We don't have all wisdom and knowledge. Now, God has the answers, and we fully understand when we see him face to face, we will have that comprehension. But until then, we are to look for Jesus for, or to Jesus for all wisdom and knowledge, and we should strive to be content even when he does not fill in the gaps of our understanding. Even when we're saying, well, why, God? We just need to sit back if he doesn't answer us and say, okay, I'm, I'm content. He doesn't want me to know. We don't have to get in fisticuffs, you know, uh, metaphorically, with God going back. And you should have told me that. How dare you do something like that? And that is the wrong attitude to have as servants of Christ. And And sometimes we fall to that. Now, we have been given enough knowledge to keep us from being deceived, and that's what Paul writes about here. In verse 4, it says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. It tells us what? That Jesus has all wisdom and knowledge. For though I am absent from you in body, I, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith, that is the faith, the noun, as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies which depend on human traditions and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So there's a call here to persevere in what you have learned. And there's the possibility that somebody could take us captive. And what this means by taking us captive, this word is to like carry off loot or plunder or treasure. And it's like they can come for us and Take us If our wisdom and knowledge is not complete. And that is found in Christ. So we have to rely on Christ. Now this word philosophy really refers to love of wisdom. You have phileos and uh, the... Uh, well, I'll get to that in a minute. But it's the love of wisdom and it's referring to the belief system at the time of the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now you've heard me talk about these guys before. Now, these guys got into the church with their philosophies, and they were false teachers. And they would use the words that they have to refer to themselves in a, pos- a positive way, the word philosophy. They would say, this is a good thing. This is the love of wisdom, and we want to give you this wisdom. It's kind of like the Kabbalah for the Jews. You know, it's this secret wisdom that we have, and we're going to give this wisdom to you. And it is only used here this one time, the word Philosophy only one time used in the New Testament and Paul is referring to it in a particular way to point out the false teachers and not philosophy in general because it's good to take some philosophy to to know how to describe what's going on in the world in a philosophical sense but it it has been given to us the word of God and we have that knowledge we have that wisdom and we can parse we can separate what is truth from what is error and they were using this as a means using hollow and deceptive information or empty deceit to capture people inside the church. That's what the Epicureans and the Stoics were doing. And Paul is speaking against this type of knowledge or this type of philosophy. Now you had the Stoics. The Stoics were materialists. Uh, They would study nature. Uh, They would be interested in physics and uh, for instance we know that force equals mass times acceleration they'd look at that and go oh that's so wonderful and they didn't have it back then but that's what they would do and they believed that one universe after another arises and in, is destroyed now we have this even today the new movie the spider-man uh, coming home it deals with a quote-unquote multiverse Where all these universes start to intersect and Doctor Strange is there and it's just weird. But this is a philosophy that has been around for a long time and they've made movies about it. Several different movies where you have these different universes and how many are there? An infinite number of universes. And you could be somebody else in another universe and a little bit different. And when one universe comes into existence another one may go out of existence and they keep on perpetuating if you get into string theory i don't want to go down that road but it it, that's how it happens this has existed forever and one universe dies and another one comes into existence and it's always been here and they use that to explain away god that there is not a need for god that there is no beginning. And they would even say, "Well, in the beginning, well, it's the beginning of this universe, but there are other universes which are out there." And so that's the philosophy that the Stoics would be interested in. They believe in orderliness and a cyclical order of things in the universe. Uh, that were and the word that they used to describe this orderliness and this cyclical uh, universe, this order that is there, the word that they use was logos. That's why John in 1, one says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word that he uses there is logos. So John is specifically going, you Stoics, listen to me. In the beginning was the logos. And they go, oh, we know what that is. That's the organizing principle of the universe. Not a God, or it could be a God, little g, but not a big God. And so that's how John got their attention. That's what the meaning is there. And so they believe that that organizing principle, that is what sustained uh, the universe and is the prevailing force. That, that is what holds everything together. And so they maintained a view of life that is orderly with rules and peace and harmony. It'd be kind of like a Japanese garden. You have a little water feature over here. You have some topiaries over there and some bonsai over here and the rocks that go around and are scraped and it looks wonderful. Everything is orderly. That's the world philosophy of the Stoics. That's how they would look at it. And then later they had this universal brotherhood uh, view of humanity Where there is world citizenship rather than loyalties to a family or clan. It's like, we are the world. Have you heard that before? That would come from Stoic philosophy. Then, there are the Epicureans. And by the way, I digress just a moment. Who would the Stoics be today? They would be the scientists, academia, the humanists the atheist and of course the idea of the multiverse that type of thing that's who the stoics would be today then there are the epicureans the epicureans believe that the greatest value in life the values in life are determined by the amount of pleasure derived from experience whatever brought you the greatest thrill that's what you should indulge in and that will bring fulfillment in life Well, that is the empty deceit. It is void of truth. Uh, And and this, we understand, is a human tradition. And that's talked about here as well. Things men have devised rather than what God has told us, ideas in opposition to God or man's ideas of the material world. And and so if you look at a life and you try to pack it full of pleasure, everything that you can do. I can remember, I, I used to get some magazines like, you guys know what magazines are? We got, we got magazines. I, I once, I get Newsweek, you know, I wanted to read Newsweek. I didn't know it was a flaming liberal uh, philosophical uh, publication, also Time magazine, same thing. You know, I, I went through stretches where I had those and I got Omni magazine and I'd read the articles just fascinated with some of the stuff that they had in there. But I can remember it was either a Time or a Newsweek magazine and opened up and it had this advertisement in there and I forget what the advertisement was for, but they showed this wonderful house and outside the house was every toy that a man could ever want. There were skis, a jet ski, a parachute, a hang glider, a sports car, and tools, galore I mean everything that a guy could ever want was out in front of this house. It was all leaning up against the house and and that would bring you tremendous fulfillment, whatever pleasure you got out of all of those things. Well, that's great. So the one with the most toys wins, right? Because you get to enjoy all those toys. I look at that now and I go, what a nightmare. I got to store all that stuff, fix all that stuff, maintain all that stuff. What a nightmare. But the world would say, no, the more pleasure you get out of those things, the the better it is. So the more money you have, the more pleasure you're going to have. It's all going to work out good. You can have a yacht. There was a boat there, by the way, and I think there's a plane on the side of the house. Everything that you could ever want was right there. The Epicureans would just be excited to the nth degree if they had all of that stuff now who would be the epicureans today those who decide they want everything and those who were involved in the sexual revolution anything sexual is to be accepted so any indulgence whether it's food whether it's money whether it's play whether it's sexual Intercourse with whoever, that's what they'd say you should give yourself fully to. So to summarize this, if you combine the thoughts and practices of the Stoics and the Epicureans, you would have a secular, a- a- excuse me, atheistic society that believes the universe evolved. You would believe that there really is no right and wrong, no ultimate moral accountability but just adhere to whatever works a pragmatic approach to life you would also think that experiencing excessive pleasure leads to the greatest fulfillment in life so if you have money possessions drugs alcohol sex you are fulfilled that is it well wait that's what we have today we are living in a time of the stoics and the epicureans This is the world philosophy that has a tendency to suck us in. Even in the church, the health, wealth, and prosperity movement. You just sow a little to God and he will bless you back 30, 60, or 100 times. If you sow a little, you'll only reap back a little. And the word faith movement, which is out there, they are deceiving people by the masses. The Morris Cirillos and the Kenneth Copelands and all those guys are deceivers who are out there promising things that according to the human condition and people have been taken captive because they don't have the wisdom understanding the knowledge that is in Christ they have forsaken Christ and gone and listened to these stoic and epicurean philosophers so that's where we find ourselves today we find ourselves battling against the human philosophy and by the way philosophy comes from philos and sophos philos is where we get the uh, from the word phileo which is friend or love church of philadelphia the church of love brotherly love and also sophos is wise so we love Wisdom, But it is earthly wisdom. 1 Corinthians, I believe, talks about the wisdom of the world as opposed to the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is foolishness to the world, and the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. We want to hold on to the foolishness of God, his wisdom, that the world considers foolishness. Now, verse 8 says... See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So there's a, an exhortation, a warning there. Don't listen to the world. Now, there are several verses that declare that Jesus is God, the, one, the ones that I've given you previously, like John 1 1, Titus 2 13, Romans 9 5, 1 John 5 20, Hebrews 1 8, and Colossians 2 9. There are others. We know that He is God. Those verses declare it specifically. But he also did acts. and He did not hide who he was. For instance, the Jews even understood that he claimed to be equal with God. That's why they wanted to stone him. How did he do that? In John 5, 18 says, For this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So they understood he's calling himself equal with God. If it wasn't true, it'd be blasphemy and he should be stoned according to the laws that the Jews were under. But if it's true, they should have bowed down. And so he made it known to them who he was. And then in John chapter 5, verse 21, he says, the Son gives life just as the Father gives life. He has the same power as the Father. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give life to. And, and, And so these people, he came to them, he showed them, but they rejected him, who he was. Also, Jesus claimed to be the God of the Old Testament. Remember when um, John chapter eight verse fifty-eight? He was talking to the Jews, and he goes, "I tell you the truth." Jesus answered, "Before Abraham was born, I am." Well, that "I am" statement comes from Exodus chapter three verse fourteen, where God is being questioned by Moses, and Moses says, "Well, who shall I say sent me?" He says, "I am." Well, that's who Jesus was calling himself. Now, Shirley McLean has done this. Also, um, Driving Miss Daisy, uh, the black gentleman who is the driver. Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman. I've heard both of those people say, I'm God. And Morgan Freeman was not saying it in the movie. He was saying it in an interview. He was saying, I'm God. Shirley McLean said, she raised her hand, I'm God. You know, you're dumb. That That is... <laughs> You are not God that's not what scripture says but Jesus came along and says I'm God. That's what he was saying when he said I am. I once had a guy who was working for me and he said Jesus never said he was God. I said, "Oh contraire. He did." And I gave him this verse. He said, "I am to the Jews." And the Jews understood that and they wanted to kill him for it because he was calling himself, making himself equal with God and he also is the creator of the universe which we saw back in Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 and 17 where he created all things we know that and so not only are there verses that specifically say that he was God but he did things to communicate that he was God and being God has all wisdom and understanding which we can tap into we can tap into all of that Again, the verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. This take you captive, lead you away, be seduced, taken to the enemy's camp. There are people out there that do this all the time. Now, I really enjoy some things on YouTube. I hope the things I enjoy on YouTube eventually go to Rumble and I can watch them on there because I think YouTube is... There's a demon or something over that, you know, Twitter and Instagram and false book and all of those things that are out there on the internet. It is definitely demonically inspired because they are suppressing the truth. And that's what we know from the book of Romans. Evil people do. They suppress the truth, which is out there. That's why I come to the conclusion. It's demonically inspired. The, the ones who control that and, And I like to go to YouTube and listen to these debates. I like the debates; it it helps equip me when I talk to somebody. I had a conversation this last week that I won't be able to get into, but I stood there for forty minutes talking about. By the way, it was about Trump and Biden going back and forth, and Trump and Biden, and using uh, truth and morality that comes from the Bible, and, and just learning the skills and watching people like. Richard Dawkins, Lawrence Krauss, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Sam Harris, and the late Christopher Hitchens. Watching these guys who are atheists debate Christians like John Lennox, you know, or William Lane Craig, or uh, Stephen Meyer from the Discovery Institute. I, I love watching that stuff and just the interactions between the two and how they form their arguments and, and going through that. And it can be very seductive listening. These men, if you believe what they say, it gives you some license for immoral behavior because they teach that there is not uh, ultimate moral accountability, and this fallen nature loves this type of teaching. I I watched this one where the uh, there were two Christians and Lawrence Krauss was there. Um, I forget the other two Christians that were there. Uh, Denise De Souza Souza was one. They're going back and forth, and the audience got to vote at the end who won the debate, and the Christians didn't do so good. Uh, and it looked like the philosophers, the atheists, won. And that's what the audience voted for, that they kind of won their arguments. And so we always need to bone up and be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within. But specifically, Lawrence Krauss is a prime example of this. Lawrence Krauss is an in-your-face, tennis-shoe-wearing, blatant sinner, just like all of us have been, Right? have to temper my words here and I I get angry listening to him now he used to teach at Arizona State University but a couple of years ago he quickly resigned why did he resign well there were several accusations of sexual harassment uh, delivered against him and guess who he was great friends of and received $150,000 at least Jeffrey Epstein was his friend. He even defended him in several statements. He was asked directly, do you think you have been harmed by your association with Jeffrey Epstein? And he said no, that it had actually lifted him up, elevated him because he had a relationship with him. Come to find out, not only Lawrence Krauss, and I watched this, Um, it was a a liberal woman uh, talking about Jeffrey Epstein and Lawrence Krauss and she started naming all of these scientists and she put them on the screen. All these scientists that have been associated with Jeffrey Epstein have received money from him and the philosophy of this world, the science that is in this world has been funded by him to the tunes of millions of dollars. But you never hear about that. And they have been to his island as well, there's a picture of Lawrence Krauss scuba diving at his island under the water. He's right there, and he thinks it's great. And so the, the science community will not speak against Jeffrey Epstein and everything that he did. That's why this philosophy it's so alluring because of the money and the pleasure that is there, and there's no morality. That's the allurement, and we know we have wisdom and knowledge in Christ, and He tells us. Do not be taken captive by it because it is so easy to be seduced by that type of person, by that type of philosophy, by that type of lifestyle. So verse 9 says, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority. He uses a parallelism here. First, there's deity in Christ, and we are in Christ. You see the parallelism that's, it's, it's like helping us to understand if we are in Christ and God is in Christ, we have the wisdom and knowledge at our availability according to the will of God exactly when we need it. Not more than we need, but exactly what we need. That's why we are to abide in Christ. Now, if we do, we will be strong. In the faith. If we don't, we will be weak. Daryl, could you put that picture up, please? Now, I want you to look at this. There's a guy there, uh, a lighthouse man. And can you see him? He has a little sweater on. He's just standing there real calmly. What's raging behind him? The sea is just like overcoming the lighthouse. And he's just going... <whistles> yeah, he's just standing there. It's like, what is going on? Doesn't he see that this... The sea is raging the sea is the world the lighthouse is christ and you are standing in that door that's the way christ told us to live just abide in him and we're completely protected from being deceived by the world philosophy he will give us all knowledge and all wisdom and that is the lesson that paul is trying to communicate to us may you be the person standing in that doorway let's pray father we thank you lord for your word You have instructed us on what to avoid, what to beware of, and also what to adhere to. We ask, Lord, that you would bless our understanding, that you would give us wisdom. As your word says, if we ask for it, you give it to us without finding fault. And so we pray for it and also help us to have our wills conformed to yours. We fail so much, Lord, but you are so gracious. And you forgive us whenever we ask. And Father, we ask that. Forgive us our sins. Help us to abide in you. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. Amen. Please stand.